0: markets, speculation, and risk.
1: This is the Chat With Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Feifield. What's up? Welcome, everybody, to another installment of your favorite traders' favorite podcast, Chat With Traders. I'm kidding, people. Just having a laugh, but welcome, nonetheless. With me on this episode, 125, is Matthew Hoyle. Matthew was once a trader or more specifically, an options market maker. And he started at a very young age on the exchange floor in Amsterdam. But since 2003, he's been in the headhunting, or otherwise known as recruiting business. His firm is Matthew Hoyle Financial Markets. So what he does is he finds the best candidates for hard-to-fill roles. He's contracted by banks, hedge funds, and all sorts of trading firms, For example, just to name a few, Tibra, Optiva, Tower Research, Citadel, Millennium Partners, amongst many others. Needless to say, Matthew's super knowledgeable on the industry and he's won many awards for doing what he does. During this episode, we get talking about tips for getting hired, the skills which are most in demand and what firms are looking for, also how firms attempt to attract and retain talent various compensation structures, and everything in between. Let's jump right to the meat of this episode. Coming to you from Hong Kong, here is Matthew Hoyle.
2: American rule of law and all that. I mean, it's good.
1: Good stuff, man. Well, if you don't mind, bring us up to speed on your days prior to being a recruiter. What's your background?
2: My background... um I actually started as the the youngest options market maker in the history of the exchange in Amsterdam. So this is back in the days when it was open outcry trading, so the stripy jackets and we were all standing around on the trading floor. Uh, so I went to school in, in the Netherlands and I, I, I did secondary school, something which was called uh, gymnasium, which is basically the highest level of secondary school that you can do. So that includes um, ancient Greek and Latin. Uh, then at age 18, I got a double offer to go to LSE, but because I started trading options at the age of 13 and had done rather well, I figured it might be a better idea to go and work on the exchange, much to the disappointment of my parents and my teachers. And lo and behold, I, I, I got a job offer, so I took it. That was a, a lot of fun. Did that for six years. Uh, was there when nine eleven happened, happened. Um, all kinds of stuff, you know. It was, um, it was definitely a very formative time of my life. Um, I also got to work with the founders of, of very well-known firms like Optiver and, and IMC and Flow Traders. All those guys were on the trading floor of us. Um, you know, the founder of Capstone, for example, Paul Britton, he'd come over from London. Duncan Valentine is one of the partners. All those guys. So it was um, they, It was a very, very interesting time. Um, the exchange went electronic in 2003. Of course, I didn't have a university degree because I insisted to go and work there and be the youngest. <laughs> So, I had the choice to either go to, go back to university and study um, or go to Chicago and continue doing open-out-crite trading. I, I didn't think that was a good idea because it was clear that it was a subset industry uh, or do something else entirely and it wound up being the latter. So, that that's how I wound up in recruitment actually by accident.
1: Okay. And did oh, I hear you correctly? Did you say Duncan Ballantyne? Isn't he one of the, um, the dragons on Dragon's Den? that's a different Duncan Valentine okay <laughs>
2: <laughs> the Duncan Valentine I'm talking about is the global head of uh, marketing and capital raising
1: for Capstone right I was gonna say I didn't think he was a trader <laughs> <laughs> I think well I, I'm sure he does trade trade, trade something but it's um, it's not the things that we trade no. Yeah, exactly exactly and you made an interesting point you said that it was it was quite a disappointing decision for you to go and trade on the floor like your parents and your teachers were were disappointed with that decision of yours. How come? Was being a trader sort of looked down upon in some ways?
2: No, um, quite frankly, it, it really wouldn't have mattered what I'd gone off and done. The disappointment had everything to do with the fact that I had been offered two spots at a world class university and turned them down. That's where the disappointment came from. It came from me not going to university.
1: Okay, okay. So you worked six years on the floor as an options market maker and then from there you became a headhunter, a recruiter. How did that come about?
2: I'd done quite well on the trading floor. Um, We we got paid rather a lot of money. It was like the last stop of the gravy train before it closed. So I I bought some real estate in, in the Netherlands and after the floor closed, I, I took some time off to decide what, what to do next. So I had the offer to go to Chicago. And um, another guy in the same building was actually a headhunter. He he was doing sales and, and marketing and also technology, which I, I to this day I still find a very odd combination. Um, but he'd been very successful but felt that his employer wasn't paying him enough. So we went down to the pub one day, which was conveniently located opposite the apartment building. And he told me he wanted to start his own business in an executive search. And asked me if I wanted to help him do it. And I said, "Well, I'm not doing anything else at the moment. Why don't I? Uh, why do I have a look at that?" And that—that's how I rolled into it. I mean, it was actually uh, purely by accident. I mean, if you—we used to get called by by headhunters even on the trading floor back in the open outcry days all the time. You know, we would always tell them to get lost, which, in hindsight, was a bit foolish. Um, one thing I, I certainly would tell your your listeners is that if a headhunter calls you, do listen to what they have to say. Don't just hang up the phone straight away. <laughs> um, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting thing. Um, if, if if someone had told me that I would become a headhunter when I was a trader, I, I would have laughed. And if they'd insisted that they were serious, I would have felt insulted. Uh, although as things turned out, I, I've actually done a lot better out of this than I ever did out of trading. And I, I certainly wasn't a bad trader. You know, I mean, uh, we got paid seven figures US back then.
1: Wow, wow. Okay. That, that's really good money, especially for... Um, however many years ago that was. So just to set the scene here, put this in your own words. I mean, I know it's pretty self-explanatory, but what is your role as a headhunter today? Like what do you do? Like how do you describe your your job? Okay.
2: Our job, it, it's really quite straightforward. We match um, candidates to employers. The driving force behind that is always the employer. So uh, we are contracted by employers, you know, firms such as uh, Citadel, Tower Research, Optima, IMC, Tibra, all, all these kinds of guys, um, to to go and find individuals for uh, hard to fill roles. Mostly, um, that that's very much the executive search part, which tends to be the higher end of the business. Um, recruitment, which is more volume driven and tend to be lower end roles, not less interest, not less interesting, but um, you know, roles which are perhaps more common things like junior trader type positions you know, or entry level technology roles you know, we, we also do that but that, that's the difference between recruitment and executive search so we do both and then across all the different market verticals within, within that finance and trading sector there's a common misconception which is that we find people jobs now we, we don't get paid by candidates uh, so we, we don't go around looking for jobs for people um yeah a lot of people do seem to labor under that misapprehension but that that, that's certainly not the case now that being said um i have been known to to put people into jobs even if i didn't have the mandate and didn't get paid for it simply because it was the right thing to do uh you know this is a business of building long-term relationships which which need to be lasting and you need to think about that rather than about where the next paycheck is going to come from
1: Okay. And so why do these firms come to you? Why do they not deal with this sort of thing internally, like in-house?
2: Well, on the lower end of the spectrum, so most graduate recruitment is done in-house these days. Um, you know, I mean, we're also not set up to go and do the milk rounds at the universities and whatnot. Uh, so generally, we we get contracted to, to do the more experienced hires uh, the reasons that they approach us are are several. I mean, we sit on a database of well over half a million people, right, which is a lot more than, than all of our clients put together, which number close to about 100 in that space. Um, we also are quite well known in the market. So what that means is that, that when good people become available, they're quite often the first port of call because they know that we have a very, very good overview as to what's happening in the markets in terms of employment. Who's hiring? Who's not? Who's expanding? Who's growing into different areas? You know, um, for example, if someone is is an, uh, an energy trader, you know, I mean, that person might be interested in in knowing which derivative trading firms are interested in moving into the energy space, right? So they can go there and set up a desk, and they might be able to get better terms. So all those kinds of things, you know, I think also the fact that I used to be a trader does set us apart uh, massively from the competition. I mean, there's a couple of recruitments and executive search firms out there which are run by former brokers now you know with all due respect to the brokers i mean I'll, I'll never forget them calling us up you know the traders and they were simply just making things up you know now <laughs> just to try and get a trade done and unfortunately there are also people in our industry that do that um that that ranges from posting non existing job ads to all kinds of other shenanigans uh, we don't do any of that so we we really pride our our reputation, um, which we've worked hard for. I, I think all those things um, contribute to, to why these companies choose to go with us. And the fact that we've got so many customers and have been doing this since 2003, I think, is, um, is proof that what we do works.
1: And what sort of trading operations do you work for? Like, Who do you hire for? I know you mentioned a few names before, but what sort of um, trading operations? Are these like obviously prop firms, hedge funds? Is there anyone else that you work with as well? Yeah. Okay. So, so we're in the hedge fund domain. Um, we
2: do pretty much everything, right? So, this ranges from multi-strategy hedge funds. So, you know, which have a multi-manager type of approach. So, think of firms like Millennium, for example, or, or Citadel. Um, you know, all sorts of firms like that globally. so this is across all strategies. So this can be from equity long short through to um, you know equity events, that type of thing, systematic type strategies, you know, stat arb, uh, index arbitrage, but also long short credit, um, distressed debt, special situations, convertible bond arbitrage, capital structure arbitrage, and there's CTA- type strategies. You know, it's it really is a a very mixed sort of bag. I find that highly interesting, actually, because I, I really enjoy talking to different traders who, who trade different products and different strategies, as do all my staff. Because people love talking about stuff that they that they're good at and that they enjoy, right? So it's always a pleasure listening to these guys. Then within the the prop trading universe, you know, there's. Uh, a shrinking number of more manual prop trading firms. Um, We don't really hire for arcades, uh, you know, where where people bring their own money. Um, Although a lot of arcades are actually also uh, doing some automated type trading. I mean, if you look at certain companies like RGM Advisors, you know, down in Texas, I mean, these guys came out of an arcade, for example. Um, You know, Baleazni, the hedge fund that spun out of Schoenfeld, I mean, that that used to be an arcade as well. So the... I certainly wouldn't write them off, um, but you know the, the propexes of this world uh, are certainly not not our main customers. You know they tend to go out and find their own people. So uh, further within that that proprietary t- trading sphere, uh, some firms are entirely automated, um, you know, or, or quickly going that way. Others still have a, a degree of manual type trading. Um, or maybe they use th- things like auto hedging, you know, or stuff like electronic uh, eye and whatnot. So we, so, so we cover all that. That's pretty much all products. So not just equity linked or equity options, you know, index options, that kind of stuff. It, it really is the whole gambit. I mean, we have clients that also trade things like crude and electricity and you know, all sorts of other jazz. Then the the last category, which, which you didn't mention, is the banks. Now, for the, you know, the last few years, of course, the banks haven't exactly been very active in the proprietary trading universe uh, now with with Trump and his henchmen rolling back Dodd-frank I do think that there is going to be a push back into prop trading now, now that's a good thing I suppose because banks are generally less picky than the hedge funds and the prop trading firms it's also a slightly different style of trading right and I I'm I'm still quite curious and I think it remains to be seen how many former bank prop traders will, will be successful. In the new sort of bank prop environment, where there's less or no flow, and you know you, you have less advantages, but that that is also another another area of interest, Um you know. And then there are certain exceptions where where brokers, you know, or especially in the US, broker dealers also have some proprietary trading activities. Um, You know, even Canter trades some prop as well, which most people don't know. You know, so that that's another area that we look at. Uh Exxon, you know, the um the French broker which is owned by BMP Paribas, that's another example. You know, although that's um that that's not a very large part. And then another area is is actually FinTech type companies. Uh firms that have come out of places like Silicon Valley or to a to a lesser extent, you know, out of out of some of the Beijing uh, development areas there, you know, where you've got firms like Google and whatnot. You know, so, so some of these companies, which are really technology driven and have built great technology solutions, uh, are now also branching out into the the trading world. Um, you know, I mean, there's there's a fantastic company in Moscow called Artificial Intelligence Management that has you know 60 uh, quants and, and developers, you know, all doing machine learning stuff like that, but they don't have any traders. So you know, companies like that also approach us looking for people that that, that have strategies that they can implement on their platform.
1: Just going back to one of the words you used, you described some prop firms as arcades. Now, I know that's a slang word and some people are probably not really understanding what you're saying there. Can you just clarify what you mean when you describe a, a prop firm as an arcade? Okay.
2: All right. Well, well let's first of all start off with, with what is a prop firm, right? A, a proprietary trading firm trades its own capital. Um, an arcade, on the other hand, uh, they ask you to bring your own money to the table which basically acts as a, a first loss type of principle, right? So if, if you take $100,000 Aussie dollars or US dollars of your own money to to an arcade, they'll let you employ leverage. Um, but the first $100,000 that you lose is your own, right? And you can't lose any more than that. So they're not actually taking any risk on you. They, they basically facilitate you. Uh, and there's also very little training involved. So... So, basically, they they act a bit like a glorified broker.
1: Okay. Now, moving on a little bit, I want to talk to you about actually sort of getting a job in the industry. So, you know, I've heard firsthand about some firms, they get like a 1,000 plus applications when they advertise for a certain job coming up. How do employees filter these? And I guess, um, I don't know how relevant that this question actually is to specifically what you do but i mean i'm sure you're very familiar with the process like how do employees filter through so many like thousands or thousand plus applicants like how do they do that well i wish i could
2: say otherwise but quite often the answer is they don't <laughs> which is another reason they come to firms like ours i i i mean I think it's good for a moment just to consider why, you know, employers receive thousands of applications. The reason this happens is that a lot of people and, um, you know, job seekers are inclined to apply for the jobs they want and not the jobs that they're qualified to perform. Now that that's a surefire way to to, to to basically not get invited for an interview, right? So um, yeah, you know, I've seen people apply to every single job that we posted, right? Whether it was, you know, it, it could have been toilet cleaning lady or something, right? And they would have applied to that as well, uh, as well as a trading job. Uh, you know, I mean, that, that that's not a good way to go about things. Um, yeah, so that that's one thing. So I've, I would say that don't apply for stuff that you're not qualified for, because um, it's going to make everyone's life easier. Now. You know, of course, yes, That there, there still are loads and loads of applications. Um, right now, a lot of our customers also use software to help with this process. They use tools like Greenhouse, for example. You know, these are, are HR, CRM type systems. Um, think of it a bit like Salesforce, but then for, for recruiting and for CVs, right? Others use platforms like Bullhorn Staffing. You know, so these, th- these tend to manage the, the flow somewhat. Yeah, so then basically you're talking to a computer, right? So what does the computer look at? It's going to look at education. It's going to look at grades, you know, especially for the fresh grad types of roles, right? It, really hard sort of quantifiable things. You know, we we have certain customers that will only hire from certain schools, for example, right? Now for the more experienced hires, that all goes out of the window, and then the computers have a much much harder time interpreting. Uh, experience on a CV, right? So you you really need humans to look at that and and make a judgment call. Now that that does become more difficult. Although in practice, it's not the senior jobs which receive a thousand applications; it's the junior ones, right? Because everyone's eager to go out and get a uh, get a job, and then just applies for everything.
1: Now this is probably more applicable to the junior positions that come up as well. Is prior trading experience? often seen as a good thing or as a disadvantage. And the reason I ask this question is because I know a guy who used to work at Hull Trading and he was in charge of the hiring and firing there. And one of the things he said to me was that if you applied for a job and you had prior trading experience, in most cases, you'd be disregarded just because of that. You know, they wanted people coming into their firm who had no sort of uh, biases or no uh, preconceptions about how to trade, so that they could sort of train them to how they wanted them to trade. If that makes sense, can you add to that? Is there anything which you have, you know, observed? Whether prior trading experience is a good or potentially a disadvantage? It's
2: very true that that a lot of our customers want to hire fresh grads, um, and this is not just for trading roles, right? I mean, there are certain companies such as Virtu, for example. Who won't hire anyone with any experience within the financial sector? This includes technologists, which of course are are also a big area not to be overlooked. Um, you know that there are some good reasons for that. Uh, one of which you you mentioned yourself. It, it's easier to train people without any preconceptions. Um, you know it. it it's more difficult to go and find out where the gaps in someone's knowledge are. You know, it's easier just to sort of start from scratch. Now that, that being said, I've always felt that it is certainly a good thing to show an interest in trading. Now this is something else than prior trading experience within a company. Right. I mean, what I love to see in a, um, a junior sort of CV is, uh, someone who might have, have written a computer program to do some, some some trading uh whilst at university, you know, or who may have gone on one of these the, these crowdsourced type of platforms like Quantopian. Quantopian is a is a good example of that. Um or CloudQuant, you know, I mean that that's a similar one owned by Kirshner. Uh, WorldQuant also have a platform like that. You know, or who may have uh competed in contests organized by Timber Hill, which was the um uh, the proprietary and market making division of, of interactive brokers that's been closed now, uh, or DRW also organized competitions like that, you know, so, so so anything which is trading related that demonstrates a keen interest in trading and technology, uh, you know, and more specifically algorithmic trading, all of that kind of stuff is, is very interesting. I mean, what, what that can also be is maybe someone who, who, who wrote a computer program to play poker for example right so prior experience and interest in are often confused but they are very different things right um having prior experience trading what i will say is this if you can also program that's generally going to overcome any issues uh, which may arise because you already have experience trading right i mean normal customers will accept that but a lot of them will you know so it's it's not the end of everything and there are ways to counter it i do think that you know whatever way you cut it showing an interest in 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 trading and trading automation and all these kind of things i, I think that's absolutely key
1: yeah okay now that that makes perfect sense um this might be a bit of a broad question and you may have already sort of hinted at the answer um already but what skills are you noticing which are most in demand as of late? That's a very good question, Aaron. It's, um,
2: it's a bit of a moving target, right? So, back in my day, it was uh, very strong arithmetic skills, right? Uh, this is even still apparent in the tests which companies like Optima and IMC and Maven Securities, you know, and Acuna, you know, all, all these Optima spin outs and Tibra. Uh, also administer, you know, I mean, you, you basically have to do a hell of a lot of mental arithmetic in a short period of time. And it's, it's not designed to actually test your ability, um, in terms of math or anything like that, because they're not hard. It's just a lot in a short period of time. It's actually more like a stress test, you know, so, so back in the day, I mean, anyone with a PhD in physics, for example, would fail that, right? Because they just weren't used to doing that. So, so people would need to practice it. Um, there's some great programs out there for that, like TraderTest.org, for example. You know, I mean, this is run by by a guy who works at Optiva. Um, You know, if if you go on that and 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 use it to practice, don't don't give them your CV. You should send it to us instead. <laughs> you know, so so that that was one thing. Then as as time progressed, you know, obviously technology skills became more and more important. Um, and that started off with with Python and, and scripting languages, and then C plus became more important. Um, you know, Java was for a short period. I mean, that's that's not something I would really bother with now. But I I think that that all these things are still relevant, right? So it becomes a little bit like a um, uh, uh, a collection of things, right? So. Y- yes, you need to be able to perform under stress. You need good arithmetic and mathematics skills. Um, you need to be able to, to script. Um, you need to know some programming, ideally in C plus uh, plus. You know all, all that kind of stuff. I mean, VBA, MATLAB just won't cut it. Um, but now, to make matters even more interesting and complicated, something that we get asked to look for a lot is you know things like statistics, and then specifically people doing machine learning and that's now also moved on to sort of deep learning, um, you know, using Bayesian methods and, and all that jazz. So I think that as, as time progresses, the demands go up and up and up, right? Um, trading becomes more, more competitive. Uh, it, it's, harder to extract alpha to find edge to, to find opportunities. Uh, so it really is a mix of all of these things. I, I don't think you can say that there is any one single thing that you need. I would say that you ideally need all of them.
1: Now, I know a lot of the hand traders are going to be sort of a bit frustrated with that answer. So let me ask you this question. For someone who just wants to be a point and click trader, right, they have no desire to code. Are there still positions that they could be looking for if they actually wanted to get a job in the industry instead of just being an independent trader?
2: Well, I mean, point and click traders generally tend to go in, in, in one of three directions, right? I mean, some of them have evolved into absolutely enormous discretionary macro traders, you know, think Paul Tudor Jones, for example, right? Um, you know, so that, I mean, that really is taking punts on absolutely everything. It's all discretionary. I mean, that that's very much a point and kick game. Others became very, very large in in certain products. Um, yeah, you know, there was a certain Swiss gentleman named uh, Paul Rotter, for example, that, that a lot of the manual traders may may remember. He lived in Singapore for a while. I, I think he just moved. Actually, he's gone somewhere else now. You know, so but but those guys tend to generally retire. And then there's the category that. And decide that they're going to go out and hire people who can code, and try and translate their ideas into automated trading. Now that there's been some uh, some very very successful examples of that happening, right? Because I I have a lot of respect for for manual traders who've been in the markets for a long time because they know their markets inside out. They know those beasts and those products. You know, like no one else does. And that's something that the quants really still can't compete with. Now, I think the trick is being able to to sort of download that knowledge and and finding ways to automate it or at least partially automate it. Although, I think in practice, a lot of manual traders do do some automated spreading and all, all kinds of stuff like that. You know, so that that is also another path to go. So, I, that's generally what
1: I see in the market.
2: Does that answer the question?
1: It does. Yeah. And are you seeing these things? just because of the sort of firms that you work with you know you typically s- tend to lean towards working with more quant driven uh, firms and, and you know different operations or do you think that's just you know a generalization of the entire sort of spectrum
2: no i th- I, I think that the whole industry is shifting more and more towards automation i mean you know the <laughs> the explosion of algo trading in countries like India and China has been very noticeable, right? Uh, you know, so I think that, that for people doing purely manual trading, unless they're absolutely huge, you know, so I think they're running several billion dollars, sort of classic hedge fund kind of style. Uh, I think that the, the the market is is becoming increasingly difficult unless they have some sort of special edge right i mean think like that guy in japan for example you know that nobody knows who he is but makes hundreds of millions of bucks <laughs> i mean that kind of stuff but when i speak to to very experienced manual traders you know the uh the arcade types of guys i mean some so of these are guys that i used to work with right They used to be options market makers i mean very very bright guys and, and they tend to go in that route you know it seems that every year they they, they make a bit less money um you know, and I ask them why that is, and they say, "Well, it just becomes tougher." You know, and then of course there are outlier years like 2008 when everyone makes a killing, right? Or 2015 in China. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that in general, uh, that that type of, of trading and business is going to become more and more difficult.
3: Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
1: Let's say a junior position or someone looking for a junior role. I know that's not your specialty, but is looking to go into a quantitative prop firm. What are some of the common roles that are out there? Because I know there's you know there's many different roles that someone can go into. You know, someone's not just an algo developer. There's there's many pieces in the machine that kind of <laughs> yeah make the firm operate. Like, what are some of the some of the sort of roles that a junior might be able to look for.
2: Well, it depends what what you want to do, really, right? And I, I would preface the the answer by saying that certain companies have a very strict segregation between technology and trading, such as Optiva, for example. You know, so if you get hired within the technology division, as uh, you know, either doing IT infrastructure or software development, uh, you won't be able to transition into trading later. Other companies do allow that. Uh, IMC is an example of that, for example. So, you know, the, the, those are things that I, I would consider. Um, now, most of the large companies do have what what essentially amounts to a traineeship, right? Either within technology or trading, uh, regardless of whether or not they, they do allow that crossover. So the, those are certainly things that I would look at. They tend to be the... Uh, companies that that find their origins in Europe. Some of the big US companies take a somewhat different approach, right? So um, the the ones who are less into the options markets but more into into Delta One type products, so I think Virtu, for example. So they say that, you know, absolutely everyone uh, regardless of what they what degree they've got, right? If it's a bachelor's, master's, or a PhD, it has to start completely at the bottom and basically starts in administration because they really need to understand how the system works all the way through, right? I mean, a company like Virtu has a hard cap of 150 employees globally, which is quite incredible considering that they, they, they make nearly as much money as some companies that have five times that many employees, right? So, you know, that, that that's a different type of approach, more a more integrated one yeah the, there's various various options i think that it it really kind of depends what environment you want to be in and yeah i, I sort of alluded to that by by talking about the the differences between several firms right i mean it really is it, it's a difficult thing because coming straight out of university you know and looking at these junior types of roles i mean obviously most students wouldn't know the differences between all these firms But the differences are, are very, very significant. I mean, consider this. Most of these companies have grown incredibly quickly. So a lot of them have struggled to really find a corporate identity and a, a, um, you know, a a clear corporate culture. So, so these things tend to be a little bit in flux. And and then when that does start to form, I mean, you know, that they really do evolve in very, very different ways from each other
1: yeah now you use the phrase "coming straight out of university. What if someone hasn't come out of university? What's their chances of actually getting a position at you know one of these firms we're kind of describing here um, is uh you know is that one of the one of the ways that employees uh, or potential employees actually filter applicants?
2: It is, but only to an extent, right so someone who has spent two years uh, you know training to be an actuary, for example could still be be highly suited for 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 a junior trading type of role, you know at one of these large firms right you know someone who who has spent the last two years doing sales and marketing uh, might be less suited. Unless it's for the wholesale desk at a place like Optima, for example, and they speak ten different languages, um, you know. So I think that it really depends on what the candidate in question has done uh, with, with their time. I think that that's a very important thing. And then you know, the second most important thing—it's going to come back down to also that interest in trading. You know, I mean, what what is the motivation in? The, if someone asks you in an interview, why do you want to get into the industry? The, the correct answer is not, I want to get rich quick. I, you might, but that shouldn't be the driving force. So I, I think a, a big part of it will depend on, on, on what someone's been doing with their time. Now, that being said, uh, these things do have a limited type of shelf life. Um, I think after three years, it does become a lot more difficult right so, so basically i mean you've got 3 years out of out of school to go and figure out if you want to to go in the trading direction or not um and then if you do you should have been doing something which at least has some sort of relevance right i mean doesn't need to be relevant to trading but but utilizes some some type of transferable skill right this is something that that, that we look at a lot uh, transferable skills so um, you know things that people do in in other industries uh, or technologies that that can maybe be applied
1: to the trading world. And do you find you know just while we're talking about sort of coming out of university and that sort of thing, do you find that as someone might get older, it does really become much more difficult for them to land a position inside one of these firms?
2: Yes, you know within technology, not so. We get asked for technologists all the time, right and um, that there's such a big shortage of, of senior C++ developers and whatnot that, you know, we'll gladly take someone who's got 15 years of experience as long as they're good at C++ outside of the financial industry, right? So so that, that, that's a very clear sort of difference. The same goes for, for very heavyweight quants. I mean, some some really big quant funds like PDT Partners or Renaissance Technologies, you know, Renatech, um, but also Citadel, you know, and, and Two Sigma, AQR, they, they will take academics as well, right? I mean, they don't want people that have actually worked anywhere outside of university, right? But it's, it's not unusual for them to hire a 45-year-old professor. So that, that's another area. You know, we're in trading. You know, if you've spent, say, five years in an arcade doing purely manual-type trading, then I think going to one of these firms and getting hired as a junior trader is going to be difficult. Right, a better avenue to pursue might be to look at an execution type of role than maybe a hedge fund right so basically managing the hedge funds flow to the streets and stuff like that i mean that that can be an awful lot of fun and and some hedge funds also uh, allow for sort of small sort of side pockets you know carouts books um you know where the execution guys can also trade at their own discretion right now of course, these aren't the hundreds of millions that the p m s generally play around with and manage but uh, you know, I mean, a place like Millennium, it, it's not unusual for them to, to to give the central dealing desk, you know, a 5 or $10 million carve out that, that they can put their own trades on, for example.
1: So, for the most part, our conversation sort of revolved around how the would-be employee can get inside one of these firms. Let's talk about it from the other angle. So, you know, what do these firms do in an attempt to try and attract the best talent that they can and also keep... That talent once they once they have them. Oh uh, gosh, um, pretty much
2: everything you could think of under the sun, right? Um, something the Americans are huge on is that, that employees should not be allowed to pay for any food, right? So they they have these massively stocked fridges, right? <laughs> I always find that that that's somewhat overkill. Um, you know, all these kind of perks, right? I mean, I've seen absolutely everything. I mean, DLW does. Yoga classes, wine tastings. Um, you know, uh, other firms take people to museums. You know, uh, days out on the town, uh, holidays. You know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's all nice, uh, but uh the thing that drives most people when they when they get some experience ultimately is going to be fair compensation. Um, you know. Uh, companies like like Tower Research and AlphaGraph and, and Jump Trading, I mean, they they all pay formulas, right? Um, big sort of international trading companies, uh, like you know the the Octavis of this world, they they pay discretionary bonuses. Um, you know, so that 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 is a big difference. Uh, I find that that the really successful traders would much rather have a clear cut, you know, cast an iron formula of their tra- trading profits than all the other perks on the side. Right.
3: Um,
2: yeah, that being said, I mean, those perks are nice. I mean, uh, another very popular one that I've seen recently is the paternity leave. Right. So, so you as the father get to take a month or two off, you know, spend with your newborn. Um, I think there was one company that was even doing that. If you got a new dog, get a a month off to go and spend with your dog, you know, um, (laughs) all this kind of stuff. So it's, it, it's a long and and, and varied list of, of things to entice people. Um but the companies that that do it best are the ones that pay the best, right? I mean if you look at a, a fund like Rentec, which has basically the best performing hedge fund in the world, which is only open to the staff, right? Yeah, you know, they have pretty much zero staff turnover there. You know, if someone leaves it's because they retire. Yeah. You know, so I think ultimately hiring people you know enticing them to join is one thing and the sort of cool perks can play a big role there but keeping them uh, you really do have to pay them
1: yeah and how much does the salary and the the compensation structures how much does that like vary between place to place like for for an equal kind of role a comparable role at you know across the board does the pay vary greatly or is it fairly well balanced?
2: Okay. So, I mean, pay is generally composed out of, out of fixed pay, right, the base salary. Um, yeah, the, these tend to be similar in, in various geographies, right? So there can be quite big differences globally. You know, I mean, the, uh, the, there was a time when down in Australia people were getting 100,000 Aussie dollars, you know, and and, and the Aussie in the U.S. were nearly one-on-one, whereas the starting salary in the U.S. would have been 60, right? So, yeah, g- generally, within the same sort of regions, you know, so Chicago is going to be a little bit lower than, than, say, New York or San Francisco or Austin, Texas, for example. I mean, those are generally the four sort of hubs in the U.S., you know. London used to be used to be quite competitive, but now post Brexit, of course, you know with the pound versus the US a little bit lower. Uh, continental Europe, in particular, Amsterdam is is probably not very competitive. Uh, neither is Germany. You know, Switzerland gets a bit better. So does Paris. You know, Hong Kong. It, it, it all tends to be quite similar. Singapore as well, Sydney as well, Tokyo as well. So that that's the base element. Now then, the variable part, right? Which of course is is the juicy bit that everyone is <laughs> is always chomping at the bit to know about. Um, yeah, th- this really depends the the type of platform and setup that you joined, right? So it's either a, a company the a large company that has a discretionary sort of bonus model, right? So. Um, th- these tend to be the big option market makers. So I so think Optiver, IMC, Tibra, you know, for the former Timberhill, Hill, but also Volant Trading, CTC, Wolverine, you know, Peak Six, all these kind of guys, right? They, they all have have that discretionary sort of sort of element. Other companies which have a, a team-based structure, so uh, Jump, Tower, AlphaGrep, uh, and a whole host of other ones, you know. That's a different kettle of fish because the, the team lead or leads have a deal with the company for a certain payout and then they distribute that within the team. So there's generally more direction, right? And quite often team members will also get a, a percentage written into the contract, right? So, I mean, that might be 10% or 15% or, you know. Um, you know, so, so there can be big variation. Now, the, the advantage, of course, in being in a big firm with a discretionary Sort of sort of model is that when they have an absolutely knockout year like 2008, everyone gets paid a, a massive amount of money right um, you know that that's really great if you're a sort of average kind of guy because then you'll get a lot more than, than you might have deserved uh, but you know some of the top performers might wind up getting getting a bit less you know in an average sort of year so they would have done a lot better at a place which does have a more structured uh, type of payout.
1: When you talk about a discretionary payout, a discretionary model, can you just explain sort of what that means a little more? Okay.
2: I'll give you an example of Optiva, right? So the way Optiva is structured is uh, a third of all the P&L after costs is attributable to staff bonuses and two-thirds is attributable to the shareholders, right? So if you you want to make a lot of money in a place like that you really need to, to be a shareholder. Now that of that third it's basically the management who decides who gets what. Now there's a lot of factors that that go into deciding that, right? Uh, Trading performance but also performance within the team, uh, how helpful have you been, have you contributed to projects, but also, you know, do you show up to work on time, are you a pleasant guy to work with? I mean, all, all this kind of stuff, right? So, so discretionary, it basically it means that you're going to find out what it is at the end of the year, and uh, you know, depending on where you are, that, that there could be a significant political element to that as well, right? Whereas if it's a percentage payout, which is contractually agreed, um, and certainly most hedge funds also have percentage payouts, right? I mean, that, that's also an interesting thing to note. Then you're going to know pretty much exactly what you're going to get. Right. So, the the discretionary payout is is something which, of course, has been long favoured by the banks as
1: well. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think that makes things a little clearer. That's good. So, just looking forward now you know, to the future, a few questions around that. Um, I guess the first one would be, are there any roles which you used to hire for um, which pretty much no longer exist? Good
2: question. I think that, that a lot of roles evolved over time believe it or not that we do even still hire open outcry trading roles right i mean ultimately big companies like like imc and octava and and ctc i mean they they do need people in the trading pits as long as they're open in chicago right of course these uh, these are a lot less common um but it's it's not the case that they've they've vanished entirely no i think that you know, if you take into into consideration that certain positions may have evolved slightly or significantly over time, I I don't think it's the case that 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 certain jobs have have completely disappeared. Yeah, just in general, right? I mean, if you take some very specific things like you know prop trading within the banks, of course, I mean that that did completely disappear for a while, right?
1: And have you seen the amount of hiring? decrease at all like as automation increases has the amount of hiring decreased in any way or you know maybe even if it's not due to automation is there another factor um, which is affects the amount of hiring that takes place yes i've always associated hiring more with volumes
2: traded rather than um the extent of automation you know, I mean, Virtu has a hard cap of 150 employees globally, right? So that's going to be very interesting to see what they do with KCG, that have about a thousand. I mean, it's probably going to be a massive amount of layoffs. But uh, you know, uh, that, that that's a more unusual type of approach. What what I tend to see is that that hiring is driven very much by by volumes first, and then volatility second, right? So when when volatility is high, everyone's looking for traders to take advantage of it. Uh, when volatility is low, everyone's looking for tech guys to basically try and you know, slit each other's throats with, with speed and latency, you know, and, and the latest microwave and radio frequencies and, uh, and all that jazz. You know, so so, so technology war sort of rages. Um, you know, and then when things are quiet and, and people find it more difficult to make money, you know, so... When vol is low, so volatility and volumes are low. That uh, that's generally the kiss of death, right? So people start to to downsize. I mean, that that typically happens after a big market move. You know, I mean, I'm I'm sure that all your listeners have seen many times that you know after a market tanks and crashes, you know, and then the volatility goes away, the volumes go away because everyone's lost all their money, and it just sort of lies down there, right? And then, you know, everyone sits around waiting for the next bull market to sort of happen. That's very much a situation where, where I would rather expect layoffs than anything else. Now, um, but that's within the, the hedge fund and the prop trading world. Now, within the bank world, yes, uh, increasing automation has led to less hiring uh, and will continue to. The reason for that is is that, you know, quite frankly, um, the banks are nowhere near as nimble or sophisticated as all the prop trading firms and the hedge funds. So, you know, these guys are way overstaffed still, and that there's a lot of deadwood that, that can still be cut. You know, I foresee that that will continue uh, going forward. I mean, especially with, with new technologies like blockchain, you know, that might be able to to replace things like syndication, you know, and um, maybe even entire exchanges, you know, and dark pools and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I think the... That within the banks, you know, who are also under immense pressure to continue to cut costs by the shareholders, you know, because they're all public companies, uh, you know, it, it's much less a factor of volatility or volumes, right? They're they're going to be cutting costs no matter what, right? If they if they have a knockout yeah, they'll th- they'll say thank you very much, that was great, but we're still going to try and <laughs> try and squeeze every last penny we can out of it.
1: Further moving forward, do you have any predictions for how? how hiring might change you know i asked you earlier what sort of skills are most in demand right now and you said well it's it's a constant moving target do you have any predictions for how hiring might change moving forward and any further developments in the industry
2: i think that the you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence is is more than just a flavor of the month sort of thing. You know, I think that, that you are going to see an increasing shift there now. Obviously, I understand that, that not everyone is, is, is going to go and study that. Uh, and they shouldn't, right? Uh, but I I do think that there's going to be increasing demand there. Um one thing which is always going to be in demand is, is people who are good problem solvers, right? Uh, nobody's really interested in hiring a trader that has one strategy. I mean, I want to hire traders that have a track record of reinventing the wheel and coming up with new strategies. You know, as, as markets become more competitive, the, the shelf life of trading strategies becomes shorter. So, what you want is someone who has the ability to, to, you know, and the energy to go out there and look for new and cool, interesting stuff, you know, and put it all together and make it happen, you know, not someone who who has a strategy that makes a lot of money, but then when it stops working, sits around thinking, oh, you know, damn, what what now? Sure, lot, right? So, I think that, that 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 that's quite an important thing. Other things which which I think will be more in demand. This might sound, sound a little odd. I, I think people who, who have a sort of keen sense of business development, um, one thing which, which I see lacking is this the, the sort of natural wonderlust, you know, and, and uh, desire to explore. I right? I mean I, I I wish I saw more people come along and say hey you know I've been trading this market it works really well but I want to try and apply it to different markets and you know or I uh, I heard that there's some funky stuff going on down in Mexico right because because Trump's rattling the sabers and you know can we go and trade that you know and apply our algos there and, you know all this kind of stuff you know or can we can we move into new product you know what's going on in China uh I think that, that that's also becoming um, more and more of an increasingly important thing now the reason for that is is that being competitive technology wise to do that on a global scale has become pretty much impossible right there is a reason that that jump and kcG you know combined forces to, to share microwave networks you know and, and that IMC has now nested in the McKay brothers and so is tower and you know it, you just can't really do it on your own so what I'm seeing is a trend where companies will invest selectively for specific trades in specific markets so you know the the way things have been going is that it's actually become more fragmented so you have different companies all different companies are fastest in different markets right so where i see the advantages for people is if you can basically take you know your your ip and your ideas and uh, and all that stuff and and then port it into new markets, figure out if it works, you know, and then make the relevant investment just in that market. you know I mean, it, you don't need to to have global colo, right? I mean, it only needs to be in 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 the markets where 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 you want to be competitive, right? That's where you want to have colo and have a microwave connection if uh, if possible. you know so so that 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 sort of desire to explore, i I think is. Is certainly something which I would like to see more of.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that's really cool to get your insight on that. You know, just to take us out here, is there any, I guess, final words, final bits of wisdom you'd like to pass on? Anything that might be helpful for particularly people trying to get into junior roles? Is there anything you'd like to share which might be helpful for them? Demonstrate passion think carefully about about answers that you give don't don't say
2: negative things about teachers or or former employers stuff like that it, it's all pretty basic you know it's um think before before you act and at the end of the day people will hire you because they think that you're going to be successful and, and make them an awful lot of money right um, but they don't necessarily want to hear that, that you, <laughs> you want to be a millionaire you know, before the age of thirty, and, and that's why they should hire. You. Yeah, it's uh, nothing really out of the ordinary, I suppose. And I, I would think that all of this is it's really rather obvious. Although, although you'd be surprised. I mean, <laughs> the sort of that people giving in interviews, you know. Uh, and then at the end of the day, I mean, just be yourself, you know. But it's, I think one thing that I, I would really recommend if possible, do mock interviews, right? I mean, so many people lose out on jobs just because they perform poorly in interviews and also on, on, on tests, right? Be it arithmetic tests or programming tests. Yeah, interviewing is the same thing. Practice makes perfect, right? And it, there's no shame in, in not doing a good interview if it's the first one you've ever done, right? Because you haven't had any practice.
1: What do you mean by doing mock interviews? Like what's an example of that? How, how can you do a mock interview? Look up a
2: bunch of interview questions on Glassdoor. uh, Get one of your mates to to, to basically pretend to be the interviewer. Tell them to be devil's advocate and just go through the motions.
1: Yeah, right, right. Now, that's really good advice, really sound advice, Matthew. If anyone listening to this wants to find out a bit more about yourself and what you do, where is the best place they should go to?
2: Our website is is MatthewHoyle.com. That's M-A-T-T-H-E-W-H-O-Y-L-E dot com uh that's probably the best place to go you can uh, you can basically just leave a message on the website uh, i'm also happy for people to email me directly uh my email is very straightforward it's it's matthew.hoyle at matthewhoyle.com so m-a-t-t-h-e-w dot h-o-y-l-e at matthewhoyle.com um, you know, and then, and then we can take it from there I mean we, there's a whole bunch of us here in the office so <laughs> there's a, a lot of people looking to fill a lot of positions so we're always happy to hear from people.
1: Very good well I appreciate you coming on Matthew this has been hugely interesting for me I mean we've covered a lot of new ground that we've not previously talked about on the podcast so um, I've thoroughly enjoyed it man thank you very much
2: Likewise Aaron I, I certainly enjoyed it myself as well thank you very much for inviting me and I wish you all the best. It's uh, it's a great show that you're doing. Thanks a lot.
0: You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.